All right, you can take your Bibles with me and turn, please, to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Last week we were in Genesis chapter 1 introducing ourselves to uh, the enemy, that being Satan, the accuser of the brethren, formerly understood to be an exalted cherub of God, sought to exalt himself above the Almighty, and so was cast out of that exalted position. Satan wanted a kingdom. But in order to have a kingdom, he needed three things. He needed the right to rule. He needed a realm over with which to rule. And he needed to exercise that right over that realm. Satan had agency at this point and still does. So it was theoretically possible for him to gain such things. For him to exalt himself above the Lord as he was cast out of heaven. But he needed a kingdom. It was understood that man had been given dominion over the created order, that man effectively was responsible for God's kingdom as it related to the created order. And so Satan recognized that if he could get man, if he could convince mankind to follow the promises of Satan's kingdom rather than of God's kingdom, man aligned himself with Satan in opposition to God, then the realm of creation over which mankind had been given dominion would fall into the hands of Satan, who could then rule as the God of this world. And in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible tells us that God had given mankind a choice, a proof of man's love, which if Satan could convince man to reject God's authority and so to partake of the fruit of which God had said not to, to submit himself rather to Satan's authority and Satan's truth claim as it relates to the tree, then Satan would have a realm over which to rule, and by virtue of man's choice, would have the right to rule over them. So last time we read verse 1 of Genesis 3, simply introducing ourselves to this person, Satan, who appears in our narrative as a serpent. Now we go back to verse 1, and we continue through verse 5. This time we're going to focus our, our efforts upon the offer which Satan makes to mankind. And as we walk through it, we're going to find that this philosophy of Satan, this philosophy which will be accepted by Adam and infused into mankind and the created order, the philosophy under which we uh, have lived since that day, is not only alive and well in the world today, but has become the dominant religious philosophy of our age a religion which we call today humanism. And Lord willing, we'll connect some of those dots for you today. So what I'd like to do is read all five verses together of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll begin walking through the various elements of Satan's philosophy, introducing ourselves to it. So the Bible says in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the, fruit of, the tree of, the, uh, of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So Satan is in the garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And Satan addresses himself to Eve. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, why it is he addresses himself to Eve. Not, not later today, we'll talk about it in a, in a subsequent sermon. But he asks a question. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now notice already the subtlety of this statement. First, it is a very cynical and an unfair portrait of the prohibition which God gives. Notice it with me. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? As Satan seeks to plant doubt into the heart of the man and his wife, he first says this this idea, has God really told you that you can't have everything, that you can't have every tree? Now, this is not incorrect necessarily, is it? God has, in fact, told them that there is a single tree of which they cannot partake. But it's incomplete. And we'll find, you find, if you do something as silly as, like, say, reading the news today, 
Uh, one of the things that you'll find quite regularly is that lies don't just come in the form of boldface inaccuracies. They come in statements that are incomplete. Statements that change the perspective, that don't tell you the whole story, that leave out certain things that otherwise would be kind of important to a full understanding of the situation at hand. And that's kind of what happens here. As Satan says, has God really withheld from you? You shall not eat of every tree. It's kind of an incomplete way of looking at it. It's a unique perspective, an incomplete perspective. God has indeed withheld something from Adam and Eve. But the thing which he withheld, he withheld for their good, not their harm. And in withholding it, God withheld from them nothing of necessity, not even anything of satisfaction, which could be enjoyed in virtue. There is nothing from the fact that they could not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that would withhold from them anything of necessity or even of true satisfaction in the Lord. And this is a common tactic of Satan. A common perspective of religious humanism as well, rooted in the fundamental philosophy of Satan's rebellion. That to be denied anything which I might perceive to be pleasurable is, or desirable is to be mistreated, is to be wrong. That I have the right to anything that I would enjoy. And if, it's, if I enjoy it, then it must be good for me. That if it looks good and it feels good, then indeed it must be good. And so for God to prohibit something which looks good and feels good is for God to prohibit something which is good, which makes God a uncaring, unfeeling, mean, uh, uh, um, uh, abusive, perhaps even we might say, God. And that, from the perspective of Satan and his philosophy, is intolerable. How dare God withhold something from me that I want, that I desire, that would taste good, that would feel good. If it feels good, if it tastes good, if it looks good, then it must be good. And that is Satan's philosophy. Today we call that hedonism, a philosophy which is devoted exclusively to the pursuit of pleasure regardless of the implications of said pleasure. And as our society continues to openly and decisively reject the principles of biblical Christianity for the principles of religious humanism, we will expect to see the philosophy of hedonism become more prevalent where a person says, well, yes, you say that something is immoral or you say that something is damaging, but if it looks good and it feels good, then I ought to be allowed to partake in it because it is good to me and how dare you judge me by telling me that something is not good that I deem to be good for me. And this is, of course, rooted in the very lie that Satan told here in the garden. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God really withheld something from you? Well, yes, but the thing that he withheld from us is, is, a, is, is, is a single thing, and it's a thing which will not benefit me in virtue in any way, shape, or form. It, does not, uh, uh, it is not needed for my, it's not a necessity, it's not needed for me to live, nor is it something which in virtue will take anything away from my satisfaction. And that is the, the natural response, but that is not the way Satan would paint it. Now, contrast this idea because it looks good and feels good. Then it is good. A philosophy that is fundamentally alluring to humanity, baked into us from the very first man and woman when they heard Satan's appeal to follow him instead of following God so that they could pursue whatever it was that would look good and feel good. Contrast that with the world as the creator God presents it where God says there are, in fact, things in this world which look good and feel good, but that are not good for you. That we are designed to be bound, not only by our senses and feelings, but by the moral design of God himself. And that as we identify that moral design and align with that moral design, we are withheld from doing things, yes, but nothing that is necessary unto my life, nor anything that is necessary unto my satisfaction in virtue, so that God has given us everything that we need within the bounds of his moral expectations for us in order to be cared for and satisfied in him. This is well summed up by David in Psalm 34, 12 through 14. He says, what man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? 
Where is the man that desires to love life and to, to see many days and to see good in his days? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The fundamental principle at play here is the question of who is the Lord and what is actually good for you. Is it good for you just because it feels good? Is it good for you just because it looks good? Is it good for you just because it tastes good? Or is it good for you because God has ordained it? Are you the Lord? Or is God the Lord? Are your desires, your feelings, your urges the ultimate authority over your decisions? Well, that's religious humanism. That's Satanism. Or is God the Lord? So that God's expectations, God's design, and God's decrees are the ultimate authority over your decisions. This is biblical Christianity. This is God is Lord. And this is the crossroads which Adam and Eve found themselves at on this day. Satan is presenting to them a different outlook on life, one which they perhaps had not fully considered before. The idea that God might actually not have their best interests in mind. Interesting. The idea that maybe they and their own personal judgment and their natural human urges might actually be a better authority or a higher authority or a more reliable authority in their life than God. That maybe they knew better than God did what was good for them and what was best for them. This is Satanism. This is religious humanism. The idea that they should have the ultimate authority over their own selves and no external force ought to be able to define for them what is moral and immoral what is right or wrong, but rather these decisions should rest with them and with them alone as free agents and as autonomous beings, and that is Satanism. That is humanism. Satan was calling upon them to be their own gods, though we haven't quite read that statement yet. I mean, we read it, but we haven't gotten there yet in our exposition. He is calling them to be their own gods with the promise that in doing so, they would find freedom from the restraints of God's rules. But of course, Satan was mistaken, or he was lying. Whether or not Satan, the, the, the difference between a person who's lying and a person who is mistaken is that one of, one, with one of them, they've deluded themselves. With the other, they've not deluded themselves, right? So the liar is a person who's telling you something they know is wrong, but they, they also know it's wrong. The deluded person is a person who's telling you something that is wrong, only they don't know it because they are caught in the delusion as well. Whether, and there's, there's always been a debate about whether or not Satan is, and we know he is indeed the father of lies, whether the extent to which Satan feels as though he can actually win. Uh, you know, has he read the Bible? Does he, does he actually know whether or not, he, does he actually know he's going to lose? Does he realize he can't win? Uh, that's a question perhaps for theologians on a debate stage. Um, for, for, for people who, who enjoy going through those, those theoreticals. But one thing is certain, this was a lie. On the first day of creation, God had said, let there be light, right? And as we spoke through that, we connected that to the creation of the moral order of the universe. If God has built the moral order of the universe into the very fabric of its created order... The design of God, his moral fingerprints are written in the very fabric of creation. If mankind is indeed given free agency to make the choice for himself, it's not going to change God's design. It's not going to change the moral fabric of the universe. It's not going to change the fact that the universe still operates by God's rules, whether or not man or anyone else chooses to operate by them. And it's not going to change the fact that the man who would see life Live and, and uh, who would love life and, and, and see good in his days is a man who aligns himself with God's moral order. So when Satan didn't, what Satan didn't tell Adam and Eve on that day was that to reject God's design would not actually redefine the world to align it with their will. Now, humanism still thinks that that's possible. That if I reject God's moral order, it will actually re- order the world, 
that if I reject male and female, that the world will actually be able to operate in a twisted and a backwards moral order where I reject male and female. That if I reject uh, the nature of uh, a man and a woman in marriage, that, that I can actually reorder the world to operate by those principles. That if I reject God's design as it relates to morality, that somehow the world can operate in that design, but they would be wrong. Much to the contrary, man does not actually become a God of his own existence, able to bend creation to his will and remake the moral order of the universe in his image. Much to the contrary, it simply causes him to begin swimming against the current of God's divine order, which will resist him at every turn. So then, as I mentioned already, as the narrative continues... Eve actually does a good job of refuting this perspective of Satan initially. Satan gives this perspective. Has God said that ye shall not eat of every tree? Has God really withheld something from you? And Eve's response is quite good. We read in verses 2 and 3. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Eve says, no, that, that isn't really the case, serpent. It isn't so much that God has told us that we can't eat of every tree, but rather we can eat of every tree but one. Uh, and we might call this a half glass, uh, half glass, glass half empty, glass half full type perspective. But the fact of the matter is, there's a big difference between you cannot eat of every tree and there's only one tree you can't eat of, Right? And then she reiterates God's warning regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we take note of the fact that this is not actually what God had said, right? In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God told Adam that he may not eat of the fruit of the tree, and the day that he eats of it, he would surely die. And there's a question as to why is this change between what God had told Adam and what Eve told Satan. And it would appear that God probably told Adam of this prohibition before creating Eve. If there's any sort of a um, chronological order to chapter 2, then God told Adam of this prohibition before telling Eve, which by implication might mean that Adam relayed the information to Eve, and it's possible that Adam added this extra layer of prohibition. We're, we're not to eat of it, and by the way, just don't touch it. So perhaps it is that um, Adam gave that extra prohibition, and then Eve, recognizing that she was under her husband as, as, her, as uh, the body of him as her head, um, was divinely bound to said prohibition, not only not to eat of it, but not to touch it, um, because that's what her husband laid in place, and her husband did that specifically so that they would never come to the point of eating it. Uh, perhaps um, it was for some other reason, in all honesty... We don't know. However, if that were the case, that Adam did add an extra layer of prohibition in order to avoid sin, well, that's a pretty valid biblical strategy, isn't it? We, we call those in our lives standards. Sometimes we talk about them at church and we call them fences. It's a valid biblical strategy to avoiding sin, isn't it? Solomon describes in Proverbs 7 a young man. And he says he looked out of his window and he saw a young man and he describes that young man as void of understanding. And the reason why he calls this young man void of understanding is because he passed by the corner of what I often call a willing woman, what we might understand to be a prostitute or a harlot. And as he passed by the corner, the Bible says that she grabbed him and flattered him. And in verses 21 and 22, the Bible says this of Proverbs 7. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth, after, uh, goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. And Solomon's lesson in this chapter, we find in verses 24 and 25 of Proverbs 7. Hearken unto me. Now, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her 
ways, go not astray to her paths. Notice he, does, he says there, let not your heart decline to her ways. Don't go astray to her paths. He began in chapter 7 by saying that there was a young man void of understanding because he went by the woman's corner. And we don't have all the details of what was going through that young man's mind, but if he's anything like any other human as it relates to sin, he says, well, I can handle it. It's not going to be a problem. I can walk that line and it will be fine. But of course, it wasn't fine. But when he got into the place where he was in the midst of the depths of temptation, he yielded to said flatteries and he yielded to said temptation. And the idea is don't incline. Don't let your heart decline to her ways. Don't go astray in her paths. Stay away from the corner and you won't be in that place to begin with, right? That's a standard. Now, it's not a sin to walk by the corner of the harlot. But it's a danger to walk by the corner of the harlot if you know that she's there. And you know what her methods, her strategy will be to entice. It reflected a mind and a heart void of understanding. To that end, it isn't inherently a problem that we see as it were a tightening of the standard here. Except this, and this would be the one thing that we might say, hmm, this is curious. And I, I gave a little bit of a possible explanation. Except that Eve attributes the consequence of a breach of obedience to the consequence of a breach of a standard. And that would be the problem, right? And this is something else that is all too common in the lives of those who hold high standards. That we are tempted to begin to think that a breach of the standards that we have put in place to keep us from sin constitutes sin in itself. So that if somebody, if, if the young man determines, I will not go by the corner so that I am not caught by the harlot, that if he ever ends up at that corner for one reason or another, he says, I have sinned, when in fact he has not. If he is not enticed by the harlot. And this can lead to confusion, it can lead to alienation, it can lead to judgmentalism, it can lead to all sorts of other problems. In our lives, when we take that which is a standard and we elevate it to a sin or not sin issue itself. Now here, once again, we don't really have an answer for these things. What is going on here? If indeed um, Eve is saying this because her husband gave her the command, then she is under that biblical authority and she was perfectly right. But she did credit the consequence to touching, not just to eating, which is a consequence which God did not lay in place. Not exactly sure all of that, but of course, all of that isn't the point of the quote anyway. The point is much more important than that. It's for us to understand that Adam and Eve were not operating under any sort of ignorance of what God expected of them. Whether or not they had upped the ante on the standard, whether or not they, uh, there was some misunderstanding by which they thought that they could not touch of the fruit, whether or not they, were, they, they had gone beyond what, what God had asked there, it really doesn't matter. What does matter is this. They knew that they were not to partake of that fruit. And they stepped into this conversation with the serpent with their eyes wide open, not only to God's expectation, but their eyes wide open to the promised consequences should they rebel. They knew what God expected and they knew the consequence if they rebelled. So Eve effectively refutes the narrative of the serpent here. She does a good job. She takes his very cynical, somewhat deceptive approach to God's prohibition. And she gives back to God his right, his rightful authority and in part, his motivations. No, God has opened up every tree. There is nothing that we, are, that we are not given that we need. We have every necessity. We have every satisfaction. And it is all done within virtue. We don't need anything that that tree has to offer. But Satan isn't done yet. Whereas to this point, Satan has not said anything blatantly false. He has used truths and he has twisted those truths and perverted those truths and, and, and caused those truths to be seen in a negative light. It's a very similar thing to what happens today, right? When we talk about even things such as standards, person approaches biblical Christianity and they say biblical Christianity is only about what you can't do. It's only about making you miserable and taking away all the things that are fun, only to realize when you read the word of God and you step into the, a life that is led by the spirit of God that within virtue, God has withheld nothing from us for necessity or satisfaction in this life or the next. 
that you can live 100% within the bounds of the Word of God and not miss a thing of the joy and the virtue that God has intended for a man or a woman in this life. In this life, not just the life to come. And so this lie is plenty old, this deception is plenty old, and we see it here. So Satan has not said anything blatantly false. He's just given a false perspective on something that is, in fact, true. God has withheld this tree from them. But that changes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. In verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. This is a very definitive statement here. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, this is where Satan lies. Now, from a certain perspective, we could still say, well, no, this isn't a lie in, in its fullest right. But no, this is, this is a lie. He directly contradicts the promised consequence of God. And the only excuse that he might be able to give for this, whereby it would not be a completely blatant lie, is, well, I was talking about this from a different perspective. In other words, the minute that Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did not keel over dead. They did not give up the ghost. But that's not what God was talking about when he said that they would surely die. So Satan takes the material and he says, materially, you will not die. But he doesn't mention what would happen spiritually. He doesn't mention a spiritual separation. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. So in the, the essence of the sense that God intended it, Satan does indeed directly contradict the promised consequence of God. Telling Eve that to eat of the fruit would not mean her death. But much to the contrary, to eat of the fruit would open up for them an entirely new context for life. That's what he's promising. That you will have a whole new avenue of life opened up to you if you partake of this fruit. In this, Satan is telling them that God has actually been withholding something, that in that God has withheld this one tree from them, he has withheld from them their fullest potential, that God is denying them what is theirs by right out of some envy or, or some fear or some intimidation of their power and their agency, that God is holding them back because he doesn't want them to be like himself, that God is keeping them from their fullest potential, and that is Satanism in a nutshell. That is religious humanism in a nutshell. That in order for mankind to reach his fullest potential, he must have absolute agency to do that which he thinks is best. He must have nothing encumbering him, nothing hindering him. If you have to crack some eggs to make an omelet, then you crack those eggs. If you go out, have to go outside of the bounds of morality, the bounds of decency, the bounds of, 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 of cultural norms, the bounds of whatever it might be in order to bring about what you think is best for yourself or for your society, then you do it. And that is the pragmatism of religious humanism. That is Satanism. So he tells them that if they do partake of the fruit, their eyes would be opened and they would be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, you know, Satan isn't lying here. And I've already addressed that a little bit. When they eat of the fruit, their eyes are opened and they do gain the knowledge which before they did not have. True. But this isn't actually the claim. The claim was, ye shall not surely die, but instead ye shall be like gods. Knowing good and evil is just a descriptive of what them as gods would be like. And we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, but they did die when they partook. Their spirits were separated from God. They experienced death. And the things that came with that rebellion did not add to the life of man. It added to the death of man. It added to his separation. It made separation the natural state of man with God. And of course, it started the process of physical death. We'll talk about that too. And so in, in this, whether or not they actually gave up the ghost, whether or not they actually knew good and evil, their eyes were not opened to be ushered into greater light they're, they were actually brought into obscurity and darkness. Darkness entered their heart, not light. Rebellion entered their heart, not knowledge. 
They were brought into a false light, the pseudo-light of supposed personal authority and moral enlightenment that serves only to draw men away from the simplicity of the truths of God's design and into the bondage of their own impulses, perception, and understanding. And this is the fundamental essence of Satan's philosophy, the fundamental deceit of his perspective. Would Adam and Eve receive something upon partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, they would receive something. But would they receive what was promised? Would they be as gods? Would they be able to claim autonomy from the creator? Would they be able to fashion the created order in their image and detach it from the light of God's moral design? No, they will not. And whether Satan knew this to be true or whether he himself, as we considered before, was so convinced of his own beauty and capability that he actually thought it to be so, that he could do this, he was that deluded, we do not know. But we do know this, that on that day Satan contradicted the word of God and he brought Adam and Eve to a crossroads, a point of decision to either trust God's word and promises or to trust Satan's word and promises. To trust what God had said, that the day that they eat thereof, they will surely die, and that God has given them everything that they need for necessity and for satisfaction in himself, or to trust what Satan said, that God is withholding from them what they actually need for personal satisfaction, for for them to be uh, uh, maximally benefited, that God is holding them back from their maximum potential, and that it is only within the bounds of their own capacity to guide their own hearts by what feels good, looks good, tastes good into, in, into their own moral boundaries that they will find ultimate satisfaction. And this is the crossroads that Adam and Eve were brought to on that day. Now, next time we are in Genesis, we're going to talk about the choice that they made. And we're going to talk through all of the ins and outs of what that looks like and why. But for today, I want to sit on this philosophy of Satan for a little while longer. Because this is not a philosophy that is foreign to our time and to our culture. As I have described these things, if you are anywhere familiar with the the direction of society today, it probably sounded very familiar to you. Because our society, every, our institutions, our government, our culture is completely overcome, dominated by This satanic philosophy. It is the religion of our day. It is the religion of our country. And we need to talk about it a little bit. In these brief five verses, we've witnessed a number of attributes of Satan's philosophy of human existence. Hedonism. We already talked about that. The idea that if it feels good, do it. The pursuit of pleasure above all else. If it looks good and feels good, it is good. And therefore, nothing that contributes to my personal pleasure should ever be withheld from me if I want it. We find that to be a foundational principle of modern culture, government, and institution. Autonomous authority. That God is not Lord, that I am my own God, that I am the agent of my own destiny, that I can wrap the world around my perception, that my feelings ought to dictate how the world around me operates, that if I feel something, that you have to cater to my feelings, that if I want something, you have to cater to my wants, but not just you, but institutions, but politics, businesses, they all have to cater to me because I am, I am autonomous. I am the authority of my own world. Who better than I should know what is good for me and who other than me should dare to try to direct my decisions? And then moral relativism. That morality is not a set of standards baked into the fabric of creation by a sovereign and omnipotent God. But rather, morality is a set of conditional values established on the basis of my needs and my perceptions and in agreement to the community with which I live. Morality by consensus, not by decree. Morality by convenience, not by design. Moral relativism. And on that day, Satan presented this philosophy of humanism, of Satanism, a philosophy founded upon hedonism, autonomous authority, and moral relativism, he presented this to Adam and Eve. And what we will find as we continue is that Eve did not understand the implications of Satan's efforts here. 
She was taken by his subtlety, and so she partook. Adam, on the contrary, though, was not ignorant of what Satan was claiming here. He did understand the implications of Satan's efforts, of Satan's claims. And he liked it. And he wanted it. And he accepted it. And so would plunge humanity into the darkness of this rebellion into which we still live today. A darkness which has raged within and without ever since. Tempered only to the extent that the light of God's word has effectively shined into the hearts of men and of cultures. And as we close, I want to connect the dots to our own culture today in a more meaningful way. From a broader perspective, the West has lived effectively in a post-Christian culture since the end of World War II. That being said, the United States has yet retained those embers of Christian zeal throughout the 21st century. But in the new millennium, as we have seen, things have changed. In the past 10 years particularly, we have seen one of the most dramatic cultural shifts since the founding of the country. Away from the firm foundation of biblical Christianity and into the sinking sand of religious humanism. So it can be safely said today that the United States operates under the unified state religion of humanism. It dominates politics. It dominates culture. It dominates institutions. It dominates private businesses. It dominates education. And it even dominates most churches. And as I close, I want to show you that what I've been calling religious humanism, the worldview under which the Western world is operating today, it is in fact the same worldview that Satan presented to Adam and Eve on the day in that garden so many years ago. So I'm going to walk through, and I, uh, those of you that have heard some of my other teachings know that I'm, 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 I'm strongly uh, connected to the uh, Humanist Manifesto of 1933 when I try to prove the points here. There have been two other Humanist Manifestos since then. Manifesto 2 was in 73. Manifesto 3 was in 2003, 40 years apart each one. But the reason why I go back to 1933 is because as an institution gains in credibility and in influence, they tend to hide what they believe more and more. And they do that because now that they have credibility and influence, they actually see the light at the end of the tunnel that says, we might have enough credibility to start to dominate. They have to hide what they are if what they are doing is wicked. Because the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Because they, the darkness has to live in the shadows. And when darkness starts to come to light, and the, the, the people who live that darkness are living in the light, they have to hide their darkness in the shadows still. So in 1973 and in 2003, each manifesto has become progressively more watered down and, uh, and uh, less dogmatic. But if we look at the way culture is living today, it reflects well it, what they wrote in 1933 when they were the outcasts. They were the dreamers. They were the ones who were looking at a society that it's a long-term plan to get to where they are today. And it took about 100 years. You know, we're getting toward that 100-year mark and... So, you know, 75 years or so for them to get there. But they couldn't say these things out loud at that time in 1933, except in their Fabian societies and things like that. But they, 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 they couldn't say these things in the town square. They couldn't say these things in the churches. They couldn't say these things in the universities. And so I'm going to walk through a couple of these. And as I do so, what you're going to find is the principles of Satan in the garden are still alive and well in humanity and in our culture. So the first of these, first and second, in fact, of this humanist manifesto, I'm not going to read them all. Religious humanism, humanists, excuse me, regard the universe as self-existing and not created. And second, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a result of a continuous Process. So the first two affirmations of religious humanism deny the authority of a creator over humanity. While the advent of Darwinian evolution has gone a long way to magnify that denial so that these affirmations um, deny the existence of God himself, in the garden on that day, Satan could not say, well, God doesn't exist because they had walked with him and talked with him. But they could say... God does not have authority. 
Satan did effectively negate the essence of God's existence by marginalizing his character and his authority. He questioned God's goodness, claiming that God was withholding from Adam and Eve something over envy or fear. He questioned God's justice, claiming that God was being unfair to them in not giving them something which was good to them. He questioned God's promises, claiming that what God said would happen upon eating the fruit would in fact not happen. He questioned God's authority, claiming that Adam and Eve had the agency to choose for themselves their own path apart from God. Now, let me ask you this. If you do not believe God's goodness, God's justice, God's promises, or God's authority, whether or not you regard the fact that there is an entity or not, do you believe in God? Is it any different from saying God does not exist if you marginalize everything that God is? You may not call yourself an atheist, but if you don't believe God's character, God's word, or God's will, you don't believe in God. Because if you feared God, you would obey him. If you knew, to know God is to fear God, and to fear God is to obey God. And so though Satan perhaps acknowledged God's existence in a theoretical way, he tore down everything that makes God to be God. And so this idea, the universe being self-existed, not created, that man is a part of nature, emerged from a continual process, that's Darwinian evolution, that man is not under the authority or the creative arm of a creator God, this is Satanism. You and I watch sorrowful, often appalled, as men commit such wickedness all around us today as the fundamental realities of the very nature of our existence are denied, as the things which have made Western culture so great are torn down, and this is not surprising, when there is no God, when we are our own God. These are the results. As Paul quoted psalm after psalm in Romans 3 to describe the fundamentally lost state of mankind, this is what he said in Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice that last statement. To know him is to fear him. To fear him is to obey him. Lack of obedience is a lack of fear. Lack of fear is a lack of knowledge. A denial of God. A denial of his character. Denial of his word. This is the foundation of rebellion. The unprofitable, destructive, angry, wicked, violent lives of a world without understanding is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And on that day in the garden, Satan presented a philosophy which fundamentally denied God's authority, challenged in the heart of man the natural and reverential respect that mankind is called to have for his creator. They, to this point, had feared God, and Satan was placing into the minds of man and woman a reason to not fear him, but rather to deny him. And religious humanism carries Satan's philosophy into the new millennium. Let's look at affirmations 3, 4, and 5. Affirmation 3, Humanist Manifesto, 1933. Holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. No spirit. Number 4, humanism recognizes that man's religion, religious culture and civilization, as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into a particular culture is largely molded by that culture. In other words, morality is relative. It is dictated by culture. It is not dictated by some sort of higher being. And five, humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. No, no, no higher moral morality. Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any and all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and by the assessment of their relations to human needs. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in light of the scientific spirit and method. In other words, if it feels good and it looks good and we can agree, that it, then we can agree that it is good and then we will define it as good. 
Religious humanism holds humanity to be fundamentally material, not spiritual. We're just buttons and wires, stimulus and response, input and output. But also, and more importantly, that because of this, morality and truth are subjective, not objective, subject to the whims and the perceptions and the needs of the collective, malleable, changeable. There is no right and wrong. There are only things which society accepts and things which society rejects. And that is completely subject to change. On that day in the garden, Satan insisted that man and woman could and should be as gods, knowing good and evil. That they should chart their own moral path. That they should command their own definitions of what is right and what is wrong. That God should not stand over them and dictate his will, but that they should claim from him their will. And they should live in that place where if it looks good and it sounds good and it feels good and there's nothing between me and it, then I should take it. And religious humanism carries Satan's philosophy into the new millennium. Just one more for good measure. I'm going to jump to eight. Principle number eight, Humanist Manifesto, 1933. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist's social passion. Religious humanism lives under the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A hedonistic view of life that denies and censures no pleasure as long as it is perceived as good. We will be our own gods. We will live and that for the here and now. This life is all that we have. It's here, then it's gone, and then there's nothing. So why should I spend my time denying myself anything? Why should I let anybody stand in the way of anything that I would want or perceive as be good to me? Because this is all I've got. So I would be a fool to deny any pleasure in order to align my thinking with some external set of expectations because I'm only here for a little time. I might as well make the most of it. On that day in the Garden of Eden, Satan reasoned with Adam and Eve that the pleasures of the material life were of more worth than the empty promises of the spiritual. Satan's words, not his words, his essence. My words, but not my words. Satan's essence. You get it. Religious humanism carries Satan's philosophy into the new millennium. And all of this to remind us today, Christian, that the principles of Satan's kingdom are alive and well in the world. They're here. We don't just live with them in existence. We live in, we are swimming in their pool. Nowadays. We live in that country, that state, that place. And as Ephesians 6, verse 12 reminds us, as we look around at the things that are around us, as we swim in that pool, we need to remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are not contending against people. We are contending against a philosophy that is, in fact, Satanism. It is the fundamental philosophy of Satan. And in each of our lives, we come more often in the culture in which we live now face to face with the promises of Satan's kingdom. They're on billboards. They're in advertisements. They're everywhere. The promises of Satan's kingdom. And you, like Adam and Eve, will be brought to many crossroads in your life, point of decisions where you are brought to this point. Are you going to Believe the philosophy of Satan, hedonism, autonomous authority, moral relativism, or are you going to believe the promises of God? God's word and promises or Satan's word and promises? Adam and Eve, among the many in Scripture, stand as an example and a warning of the inevitable results of choosing our way over God's way. Jesus said at his own crossroad, The moment of his temptation in Matthew 4, 4, as he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And may we be determined to live this way, 
to subject our feelings, our emotions, our perceptions, our temptations, our understanding of culture, our understanding of the world as it works, our compulsions, our desires. May we, by God's grace, learn to subject all of those things to the authority of the Word of God. To remember, as Eve forgot... And as Adam rejected on that day so many years ago, that life is more than meat and raiment, more than food and clothing, more than what feels good, more than what looks good, more than what tastes good. It takes more than food to live, Christian. If we just call living like the humanist does, this life and this life only, well then, yeah, you need food to live and that's it. But if man is a living soul, If on that day in the garden, when God says, ye shall surely die, what was going to happen on that day is not that they would wither away into nothing and give up the ghost in in their body, but rather that their spirit would be fundamentally separated from the life of God and they would be ushered by that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not into the light of knowledge, but rather into the darkness of rebellion. If we know that to be true, as the word of God says it is true, That true life, the life God has designed mankind to live and within which to flourish is absolutely dependent upon our faith in the words that proceed out of the mouth of God, then this will drive us to a certain manner of thinking, living. A manner that is aligned with God's word. For to know him is to fear him and to fear him is to obey him. And may this drive us in our love for God that God has in his word and according to his plan withheld from us nothing for our necessity or even our satisfaction in virtue. That yes, there are things that we do not do as followers of the living God. That yes, as I walk the path that Christ walked, there are going to be elements of denial of self against the world and the flesh and the devil. But these are not denials of things which are best for me. These are things which I deny of myself in obedience to the Lord's command, specifically because they are things which are not good for me. Specifically because God has provided for me everything for necessity and satisfaction in virtue. And I don't need it if he has not made provision for it. And that is the philosophy of God. Biblical Christianity. May we love God. May we believe God. May we obey God. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.